The God of Atheists, Chapter 59, A Pointed Review. Dave was called to Cyrix in mid-October and asked to bring all his paperwork relating to the project. He brought Pierre and Terry to the meeting. They were ushered into a conference room. After a few minutes, an East Indian man, accompanied by a man even younger than Terry, entered the room. The man sat down and opened a large binder. Mr. Bugle, thanks for coming in on such short notice. My name is Nabil Gurgis, and this is Wes Leeds. I am a senior IT project manager. Wes here is our database expert. Pleased to meet you, said Dave, rising and beaming. This is Terry Coleman, my CTO, and Pierre Lerain, the technical lead on the project. Pleased to meet you. Now, the reason I've called you in is that I need some answers to the project you were working on with Mr. Howell. Sure. W where is Ted? Is he okay? Mr. Howell has gone on indefinite stress leave. Wes grinned. He came to work in combat fatigues and answered his phone like it was a walkie-talkie. Nabil frowned at him, then continued. So I've been asked to review the projects he had on hand, and I've come to yours. Uh, tell me a little about it, he glanced down. The paperwork is a little scattered. Dave grinned. Well, in short, we were attempting to create an operating system for the environmental manager. West looked up quickly, then stared at Terry. The what? he asked. Our aim, continued Dave, is to place all the technology needs at the fingertips of the environmental manager. Everything he needs to do, he does through our system. Nabil frowned. Right. Now, this project was supposed to be finished, what, in, in July, over three months ago? Well, the original date was based on a scope which Ted himself asked to have expanded. Can you give me the original project plan as well as all the subsequent changes? Sure, said Dave, opening his binder. He ruffled through it for a moment, then turned to Terry. Terry, you were dealing with him about the changes, right? Uh, yes, yes, we, we, we spoke about it quite a bit. Let me see the original project plan, said Nabil, holding out his hand. Well, it's mostly outlined in the contract, said Dave, turning the pages slowly. I've gone through the contract, said Nabil, and I can't find any real specifications. I do have something here, dated March the 10th, which says the customization will run $10,000. How was that number arrived at? I talked it over with Terry, said Dave. Okay. Terry, where did you get that from? That was the original estimate, right? Y yes. So how did you decide the scope? Uh, well, uh, I met with Ted, and uh, he, he showed me the reports he had to create, and, and he had some spreadsheets, and, and he saw the program as I was going along. So you have an estimate of hours? Oh, we, we charge $50 an hour, so yeah, I, I thought it would take 200 hours. Nabil jotted something down. Okay, so 10 weeks. Yes. Does that include testing? Asked Wes. Yes, said Dave. 25% of that time is QAQC. Nabil frowned. So how are those 200 hours broken down? Where, where do they fit into the project plan? I couldn't find a project plan. I need a copy. As I said, it's mostly in the contract, and we had a lot of verbal conversations. Okay, okay, okay. And then things began to change. There are some notations here about metric and imperial conversions. Tell me about that. There was a slight pause. Terry, said Dave. Uh, oh, uh, well, T Ted said he needed the U.S. plant in the database, and so all the reports needed to be in metric and imperial. Okay, exhaled Nabil. Did you talk this over with Ted? Dave smiled. I told him we were putting the conversions in the database, and he seemed delighted. Did he also mention that he has no reporting requirements for the U.S. plant? That's all handled out of Lansing. Dave paused. Uh, no, no, he didn't mention that, but how much... Was the conversion capacity going to cost? Well, I asked Terry, and he didn't seem to think that it was that difficult. How were you doing it? asked Wes. Terry clasped his hands together tightly. I was uh, going to store standard units in one field and then the, let the user display whatever he wanted in another one. Huh, how many fields? Terry glanced at Pierre. Maybe a hundred? I think a little more, said Pierre, unsuccessfully hiding a dark Quebecois scowl. And the reporting? I'm still working on it, said Pierre. Nabil held up his hand. Okay, so how much did this cost? We decided to include it as a complimentary feature, said Dave. Our reasoning was this. Since we failed to take it into account at the beginning, it was our responsibility to make it right. 
But it's not mentioned in the contract, right? No, we realized it later. Nabil nodded. So you decided to do it for free. Sure, that's your prerogative. But where is the documentation which says, hey, we made a mistake, we'll fix it gratis, but it's going to extend the deliverable by X hours. That's what I can't find. Well, according to Terry, it wasn't going to take that long. Let me ask you something else, said Nabil, sitting back in his chair. Who is the project manager here? Terry, said Dave promptly. Okay, Terry. What is your training in project management? Uh, well, I, 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 took a sy I took systems analysis in college. How long out of school are you? Six months. Is this your first software delivery? Yes, Dave smiled. However, in school, Terry, okay, said Nabil, holding up his hand. We need to pause for a moment. Let me tell you what I see coming in from the outside. We have a project with no scope, no project plan, no clear delivery date, and you have decided to solve a problem, which is not even a problem, without telling us. If you'd gone to Ted and said, hey, this metric imperial thing will cost you another 10,000, say, and extend the project by a month, he probably would have said, it's not really that important. Dave leaned forward and smiled. Mr. Gerges, I am confident that we can get the software to you, error-free and ready to go, by Friday of this week. Nabil smiled. I appreciate your confidence, Mr. Bugle, but I'm not sure what it's based on. As far as I can tell, you made the sale. You're the salesperson, right? Okay, so you made the sale, and then Terry took over, and I'm sure he's a fine programmer, but he has no idea how to run a large project. Well, with all due respect, said Dave, I think that Cyrex should stand by the decisions of Mr. Howell, who was a valid employee at the time. Of course, said Nabil. The problem, though, is that we have no idea what those decisions actually were. Frankly, there's no real documentation of any kind. And we don't really want this metric imperial thing. It will just confuse the user, and we have no idea how long it will take to remove it. Quite a while, though, I think, said Wes. Let me ask you something else, said Nabil. How many hours have you spent on this project? We didn't bring that information with us, replied Dave. It's in our time and billing system back at head office. Okay, but roughly. You've been on this thing for what, five months? Dave nodded. Yes, that's about right. Terry, have you been working on this full time? Uh, I, I've been doing some presenting as well and, and some specs for other clients. And reviewing RFPs, added Dave. So, Pierre, you're the lead programmer then, is that right? Yeah. And this is your first software delivery? Uh-huh. And you've been working on this full-time? Pierre nodded, his head low. Is there anyone else on the project? Asked Nabil. Dave nodded eagerly. We have a full-time QAQC manager whose resources are entirely devoted to the project. And the hourly rate? It was a fixed-fee project, uh, not to exceed. So you have no hourly rates? Well, they're $50 officially, but... Nabil pulled out a calculator. Okay. So let's say half of Terry's time, all of Pierre's, and all of the QA guy's time. So that's $16,000 hours for Terry, and 32000 for Pierre, and this other guy's time, which gives $88,000 worth of time, not counting any of yours, Mr. Bugle. And that's assuming no overtime and not counting the presentation and on-site time. You're charging, what, 35000 for the whole thing? And you're not done yet? Did your quote include training? Dave paused. Yes. Nabil laughed. So, I mean, even with very conservative estimates, I think you're spending more than $100,000 on a 35K project. He held up his hand again. Uh, sure, I know, I know. You'll say it's a lost leader, but frankly, you don't have any processes in place to avoid this kind of loss in the future. No project management, no specification process, no triggers for overruns. So even if we take the software, I have no reason to believe you will be around to support it by this time next year. Well, Mr. Gerges, let me be the first to say that, but that's all pretty irrelevant, continued Nabil, closing his binder. The point, Mr. Bugle, is that we are now in a legal position to cancel this project. Dave nodded slowly. Hmm, this is serious. I'm afraid so. I've got to tell you, Mr... Can I call you Nabil? Nabil, I understand where you're coming from. You, you think we're cowboys, right? That there's some... 
Okay, I hear you. We're gonna fix this. We've got Mr. Bugle. I'm canceling this project. There was a kind of strangled silence in the room. Dave's eyes widened slowly. A genuine facial tick crossed his cheek like a spider struggling to get out. Cancel, he cried. Cancel! But Ted had no problem with us taking a little extra time to get it just right that, that the data is all across. We're just testing the final interface. So you want the conversion stuff gone? We'll just hide the fields. It's, it's not really that big a deal. Nabil! There is also the matter of security, right, Wes? Wes nodded. You're using access, so security doesn't meet our corporate standards. As far as I can tell, added Nabil, this database contains very sensitive information. We talked about this with Ted, said Dave, and he and Terry put their heads together and came up with some great solutions. Sorry, but we can't use access for data that sensitive. W w we could upsize it to SQL Server, said Terry. M M Microsoft has a wizard. Wes shook his head. We're an Oracle shop. Okay, said Dave, taking a deep breath. We're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Surely there's something that can be worked out. Nabil shook his head. His voice was suddenly steely. No, you are too small. You have no processes. You are way over cost. And frankly, you are unprofessional. You go over and don't tell us. You're late and don't tell us why. You add significant features without due process. You have no project plan no change documentation, and all evidence points to the fact that you pulled your initial cost estimates out of a hat. You wanted the sale at any cost and made it. Now I have to unmake it. Now, Nabil, said Dave, his cheeks reddening. I don't mean to sound harsh, but don't you think you're sort of springing this on us? We had no warning that the process was going to change just like that. We have worked for months with a representative of Cyrix who had no problems with what you're doing. Sure said Nabil evenly. That's why I decided to meet with you. I thought, maybe Ted just kept bad records. Lord knows his exit was not the most grateful. But there are no records of anything, Mr. Bugle. This project was just floating in space. I would bet my job that this thing will take another six months to finish. And even if it were perfect, it will perform like a pig. I mean, my God, man, you sold us a corporate-wide program built on a toy database. That's what was bought, yes. We, we told Ted about the limitations, but, but he didn't have the cash to. Why did you sell us something you knew would not work? Wait just a moment, cried Dave. We didn't know it wouldn't work. I know everyone wants to make a quick buck, said Nabil, but it's people like me who have to live with the consequences. And people like Terry and Pierre, I think, too. You just come in and make the sale and let inexperienced people produce the software and then browbeat them. You never work with anyone who knows what they're doing. Because of people like you, Mr. Bugle, corporations need lawyers and people like me. I swear you give everyone in a suit a bad name. This is bullshit, snarled Dave, leaping up and grabbing his papers. We're leaving. Our lawyers will be in touch. Nabil nodded slowly, then picked up the contract. We're in a legal position to cancel, Mr. Bugle. Our lawyers work very hard on these. And now... I think that based on this conversation and what is in here, I will also charge you for our last time as well as the customization fees. Dave's face worked grotesquely. I once worked for a big company, Mr. Gerges, and it was people like you who drove me out. Nabil smiled. Competence has a way of doing that, Mr. Bugle. Chapter 60. The Babblefish Speaks. Rudy was not an absolutist, but something about Gordon had gotten to him. One night, when he couldn't sleep, he got up and spoke the following into his computer. <sighs> I know it's all bullshit, but it smells anyway. I sometimes feel the most god-awful depression. Not in my soul, because that's been deconstructed, nor in my loins, which are the keystone of my male dominance, nor in my heart, which is damned off by Western materialism, but somewhere important in my being, somewhere down in the marrow, something is clamoring at me. I know it's all a kind of shell game, and I need to spend every waking hour cursing, spitting on, and undermining my culture 
in the hopes of being paid a middle-class middle salary to teach those who come after me to do the same, but there's something about all this mess. And come on, people, admit it. It is a mess. Something we need to look at a bit more carefully. A lot of you out there have been helped by me. I sent you off into the deserts of your theses armed with just enough food and water to get back, if you rationed yourself fiercely. I always knew that there was nothing in my advice. I've always just had a knack for wet-fingering the prevailing social winds, but there is something in me, something. I want to know where the winds come from. It's all very Magellan and Peter Pan, but there it is. Someone recently came to me and, and had what I could really call a great idea. This thing would blow your minds, people. But it has no hope of getting anywhere here. I tried upshifting it, but I couldn't. Brothers and sisters, I just couldn't. For the first time in my life, I was unable to translate something alive into Pomo, which I now classify as a dead language like Latin. Pomo cannot contain this great idea. All it can contain is what we already believe, which is that there is nothing to believe. And we are so certain that there is nothing to believe. We think we are open-minded, but it's just slack emptiness. We hate anyone who's certain. We do, my brothers, in the secret vessels of our hearts. We hate certainty and confidence and love cynicism and empty charm. <sighs> we are so funny, we are. We know all the hideous recesses of modern culture. We sing of obscure things, and in so doing we say that what is important is not truth or, or, or courage or nobility, but the theme song from some 1950s sitcom. We are a cancer in the throat of the modern world. We have invented a language through which we cannot be detected. We have swarmed the halls of academia, camping in the highest places of thought, in our cluttered and twisted tent cities. We carry a self-hatred so deep that we cannot see it, not in ourselves and not in others. We go through each day like a pantomime, we are scared of shadows in the halls and hate the world for not making our lies true. We ask every question, but are we right? What, what, what if the world does exist? And what if language is supposed to have meaning? What if there are such things as truth and goodness? Where in that shining city is there room for us rodents? Every time an anchor is thrown overboard, we chew the rope. Every time a man reaches up to climb, we attack his ankles. We are a pestilence of perfection. We live for finding flaws. Every advantage, every virtue is eclipsed by deficiency. We cripple heroes for their tiny flaws. Our standards are not goals, but weapons. We are an acid. We undermine what we cannot achieve. We shadow box our enemies into exhaustion. We feed on the natural doubt of the honest thinker. We never prove. We only imply. We never say, just infer. We never explain, just embarrass. None of us have any idea what truth is. We have, we have no clue what we are saying. We just play with the words we accept without thought. We parade for each other, pretending at rebellion, but we never challenge and are never exposed. We are paid to be thinkers, but
but never come to any conclusion. When society picks its teams, we're not even picked last. We don't even know where the field is. We may as well be on the dark side of the moon, making hand gestures in spacesuits, our faceplates painted over. We have no utility, and so are nothing but arrogance. We have no truth, and so are nothing but scornful assertion. We have no honor, and so are self-righteous, backstabbing villains. We have no purpose, so scorn all certainty. We make all the noise we can to cover up our awful silence. We bite the hand that feeds us and call it education. We corrupt the young and call it education. We erode the foundations of our society and call it education. We only criticize and call it education. We work for evil and call it education. We are the hateful kid who dares the honest kid to strike him. We are the natural plagues of society, invading a society unaware of our danger. We have taken over the pillars of learning, the first and last defenses, and now slither through the shadows of the last days. The entire point of our lives is hiding. We are ghosts, visible only in clanks and shadows. We damn truth because truth would damn us. What was our birthing? Why are we drawn to speak of ideas that we believe do not exist? Why do we lower the earth to make a false tower? I think, I think it's quite simple. At least it was in my case. I was curious and asked many questions. For every child, the question stops somewhere. The sky is blue because of X, X is because of Y, Y from Z, Z just is. But I, I was never happy with that end point. Always and forever, there had to be something more. But that is at the very edge of society, of family, of loved ones near and dear. To sail beyond visible land requires more navigation than I possessed. The why of what is right it's what everything is built on. If you sail beyond that, if you take one step past the painted horizon, then you dissolve into air. And that is where real terror lies. We are social beings, but we are also beings who yearn for truth. I yearned for truth. I went that one step past the line of no more. And so society dissolved. My family, wi which was my society at the time, sifted into puffs of dust. My father's authority, nothing. He did not know what or why he ordered. My mother's heart, she loved and grieved for what she did not understand. I became arrogant. I believed that I had gone past all trappings into the truth, which was that everything is will. I was ordered for the sake of order. There was nothing of my benefit in it, any of it. I must wear a coat when it's cold, but to apologize for speaking out of turn, to not shoplift, lie, not lie, God, my parents told me not to lie while having no idea why, why lying was wrong. 
It hurt people. My father is a dentist. Is there a worse lie than punishing for lying without knowing why it is wrong? So rather than being instructed, I was just being commanded. It was a dare, the crying of uncle under a bully's knee. No one had any real idea why I should or shouldn't do things. It was habit, convenience, and power, of course. Power. And I, I wouldn't have minded even that, except that it was, it was a coward's power. A bully is more honest. You can hate the bully. He doesn't pretend to represent right. But my, my father, my teachers, all our petty little leaders, they all said, submit to the good, not me. But when I asked, they had no idea what the good was. So what the fuck was it but power? So, to hell with it. My heart becomes a thin desert of stark shadows. Anyone who claims right is now my enemy. Every fuck who pomps and preens and drapes pretty ethics on the thick shit of power is my eternal foe. I will rip the gilding from every empty altar. I will become cancer to see if the body should live. I was not alone in this attack. I thought I was. But to my left and right was a sea of ghost riders. We all sensed something false and self-serving. It was all a form of advertising. This or that is no more right than Coke or Pepsi. Every pronouncement is propaganda. I hoped I was wrong. This was our great secret, and, and who among us would not welcome the restoration of righteousness? If there is such a thing as goodness, then our parents are saved. The world is saved. We are saved. Even if they did not understand why, they still did the good. And all is not power and control. But we cannot find goodness. It is gone from our times. It has been emptied from the words of our elders. We have been fooled once. We are hardened against trust. But in our hatred, have we lost the capacity to keep looking? We fell from illusion because we demanded truth. Have we now lost even the possibility of looking for truth? We have learned that leeches make us sick. Now we say that medicine is without worth. Yet still we study to be healers. We have become what we despised. In our pursuit of predators, we have become but teeth and claws. We say we do not believe in truth, but pursue knowledge nonetheless. We have become as false as those whose blindness first spurred us on this path. They say, this is the good, but knew nothing of right. We say, this is knowledge, but know nothing of truth. But we may be wrong, brothers and sisters. This path we walked past the line of nothing more, this path that has led into the gray desert of indifferent opinions, where we can only nod at each other in silent passing, this path may have become something we defend as our very homes, not as a route to something else. We found our maps were false and became lost. Is our journey now to defend our disorientation? Would we rather curse all maps and stay lost? 
Do we love our false lessons so much that we will falsify the world to save them? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was a false line, that line from false to nothing. False, yes, it was all bullshit, but that doesn't mean that it always must be bullshit. If we've given up looking for truth, let's all just turn in our library cards, empty our cubicles, rise up from our basement bedrooms, take the jobs our training has prepared for us, and say with one proud, honest, accurate voice, would you like fries with that? Chapter 61, A Father-Son Chat. The beauty of a shifty life is that there is always one more card to be played. Dave was down. His company was in trouble. His debts were unrelieved. He had opened offices, bought fabulous equipment, spent a fortune on advertising, and the company was just not bringing in any money. Knowing that, he went down to talk to his son, who was in the basement. Justin was learning the bass. He wanted to be ready for his solo album. Justin, said Dave, coming down with two beers. No one else was home, so it was okay. Yeah, Dad, asked Justin, frowning at a book of fret notations. How's it going? Here, he said, lobbing a can of beer towards his son. Justin was holding the bass in one hand and his learn-the-bass book in the other, so the beer just sailed past him and over the couch. Dave frowned. Well, that wasn't quite as James Bond as it could have been, eh? I'm good, Dad. Dave went around the couch and retrieved the beer, then sat down in the Lazy Boy. He reached back and flipped up the footrest. Man, I love this basement, he said. Good times, here. Oh, man, thought Justin, he wants something. He suddenly flashed back to a scrap of the movie Sid and Nancy when Sid is trying to learn the bass and the lights go out. So what's going on with the band these days? asked Dave, taking a pull of beer. Not much. We're practicing. How many songs you got now? Just the one. Dave grinned. Well, that's all it takes, right? Mm-hmm, murmured Justin, peering at the book. I don't know any songs with really good bass lines. Walking on the Moon is way too retro. I tried that once, smiled Dave. Some frat party, I got up and wanted to rock and roll. I think I did my Sharona. I do one verse. The guitarist pulls me aside and says, I think there's more than one note in the song, man. Never try it again. Don't know where you get it from. Angela sounds like a cat being fed ass backwards through a blender. Dave took another sip. I envy you, though. Cut the song, it's done. Software is a fucking mess. It's never done. Next time, I'm starting a construction company. You can sell a half-finished building if everything else screws up. So do you think you're going to be big? Don't know, Dad. Because i got to tell you, son, if you don't. <laughs> Justin raised his head. What do you mean? Dave raised his hand and touched his thumb and forefinger together. Because, you know, we're just hanging by a bit of a thread here. What? Things have taken a sudden turn. The business is not doing so well. What the hell? You, you got all this financing. That's not my money, son. The board won't let me increase my salary. They want to keep me at startup starvation forever. And it's been too long already. F five businesses failed. 8K for 10 months. Nothing for 18 months before that. Things are getting ugly. Justin shrugged. Oh, I've been down that road before. Yeah, like my 11th birthday, Dad, when you cried. Oh, no, said Dave sadly. This is different. He smiled. I'm sure I've said that before, but... <laughs> I mean, your mom's not about to start working. Sarah's too young, damn those liberal laws. You, you think I should get a job? Dave sat up horribly. A job? You have a job, and a damn good one, too. You gonna be a superstar, son. Well, it's early to tell, Dad, said Justin wearily. I hope not. I put some money into your band but that toad, Al. We're facing a fucking wall, Jess, but 
we're only going about Mark three, so we should be okay. Bit messy, but I mean, your sister loves that school. You do too, right? I mean, it costs enough. Excuse me? We're on the same page, right? What are you talking about? You could make some real scratch here, right? Don't those superstars all buy their grandparents' boats and stuff? This is like a possible source of income? I stress possible, said Dave, holding up his hands. I'm not trying to ride you, Jess. I, I just want you to know that it is important for me, for us, for our family. How important, demanded Justin. Hmm? Like, we're busted important? Like, we don't eat if I don't do well? Well, yeah. I'm sorry, but yeah, mostly it'll all go. School for sure. House. Cars. What? You got nothing socked away? Look, we're talking frankly like men, so don't get all... But yeah, pretty much nothing. Justin threw down his bass. A low, wounded hum filled the room. What the fuck? This is a fucking lark, Dad. This is not something for you to fucking feed off. Whoa, cried Dave, wriggling to his feet. What do you mean, feed off? Dad, you know what I mean. No, what? All these kids you get involved with, these little wide-eyed computer nerds. I'm not going to be one of your... I don't know, what the fuck? Justin backed away. No way, Dad. No way. So we all go down, and who benefits? Will you feel as holier than thou when you turn your uniform in? You, the little lord of the social set? Because, you know, being big in grade 11 doesn't make you shit in the world, Jess. We all have to grow up sometime. This is your moment, and you're not doing too well. Grow up? Grow up? You fucking lie for a living! Dave pursed his lips. Just like Ange. Maybe, he said softly. But you live off those lies. Justin stared back at his father, then threw his instrument down and ran up the stairs towards the air. Chapter 62. Cute Newcomers. The day of the MTV special had arrived. Greta and Al were in the dressing room with the boys, fussing and adjusting and criticizing the makeup staff. The boys themselves were quiet. It was suddenly quite clear how very young they actually were. They spoke little and went through interesting and rather inhuman shades of color as the hour of their first appearance drew near. The level of interest in boy band, trademark, had been quite intense. It was perfect for the Pomo kids. They could feel lust and cynicism at the same time. The boys' images had been plastered over MTV for the past two weeks, along with other cute newcomers, and they had already started receiving fan mail. Their single was getting good airplay. It was the kind of Elton Johnny pop that grows on people through repetition. They showed up on web searches, not as high as Al hoped, but then he figured out people had problems with the umlaut over the O and cursed that decision again. Various word games had arisen over the name of the band and their types in large letters under their name. The funny one, the shy one. A few enterprising VJs just used these types, forgoing the boys' names completely. A local pop radio station had a contest to see the public unveiling of boy band trademark, they had a contest for it called A Contest to See, Boy Band Trademark. There seemed to be no end to the possibilities for self-referential language. Al had barely averted re the renaming of What You Want Me to Be to Pop Single. The Apprentice Angel video had also gotten a lot of airplay. Linus had convinced Al to insert pop-up video balloons over certain scenes. For instance, the initial shadowed outline of the band was labeled the Keep Them Hidden Anticipation Shot. So, there was great anticipation. The crowd outside was screeching and yawning in an unleashed, preteen, hysterical way. The VJ kept popping in to make sure they would be ready. 
They heard the other acts going ahead of them and saw them on the overhead monitors. The VJ put grunge band with a little umlaut over the U under the first one, but incense managed to stop that joke pretty quick. Sitting in the makeup room, Justin felt himself floating aloft over the world, rising on some strange, dark helium passion growing in his chest. Where my heart should be, he thought. As he stared from a thousand miles above into his perfect mirrored face, Greta's multicolored hair eclipsed him and he jumped as she snapped her fingers. Just get with it, she scowled. Lean your head back. Let me tie your neck. What? thought Justin. He suddenly remembered a joke from years past. A messenger runs up to Anne Boleyn as she climbs the steps to her own beheading. A message for you, milady, he says. She smiles. Drop it in the basket on the other side. I'll read it in a minute. Just, cries Greta, lifting a scarf of fuchsia and black. Head back. She threw the scarf over his head like a lasso and pulled it tight. Oh, Justin cried suddenly, grabbing at the fabric. Back it off. Al's head jerked up from a magazine. What? Everything okay? Yeah, said Greta. It's too goddamn tight, cried Justin, kicking his rolling chair back from the maze of blinding lights that was his makeup mirror. He tore it from his neck. His shoulders were unbearably tense. So? said Greta, rolling her eyes. Well, just tie it looser. It's a bit early to become a total prima donna, Jus. You know, said Justin slowly, his eyes focusing on the pink scarf. These things are really gay. Ian snorted. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Just we have no time, snapped Greta, grabbing the scarf from his hands. Head back! She leaned forward and curled the fabric around his neck. I don't want the scarf! cried Justin. They fought violently for a moment. Then Greta said, Okay, okay, you're going to tear it. I'll take it off, all right, all right. She straightened, rubbing her back. Justin, you have known about these scarves for six months. I have shown you about a thousand designs. I was up until two this morning getting these ready. It was a joke then said Justin, rubbing his neck. Hey, cried Ian uneasily. Blasphemy, brother. It's still a joke, and don't you ever forget it. I don't want to wear these, said Justin in an unnaturally small voice. Al, talk to him, for Christ's sake. Al stood up slowly, his lips compressing into two fat little pink sausages. He peered at Justin, then snapped his fingers. Make up here. A woman with pink hair appeared at his side. Fix that neck, he said, pointing at Justin. Yeah, kind of red, agreed the makeup girl, pulling out her powder and approaching Justin. What's he got a rash? Ow, cried Greta in a wounded voice. The boy doesn't want the scarves, Scratch. Stop screwing around. I've worked for months on these goddamn things. What the hell? Errol's eyes narrowed. Do you really want to do this now? Gret, we know how he is. The makeup girl's pink hair bobbed as she worked on Justin's neck. Don't rub it out there, she whispered. It's really red. Greta's face was red with ill-suppressed scorn. Oh, we can't disturb his majesty? It's a little scarf? Just a little goodie for the maternal unit? Talk to him, Ian, can't you? This is my big chance. Ian sighed. I don't think it's quite the breakthrough you're thinking of, Mater. What do you mean? Oh, Christ, you're like some Dungeons and Dragons geek who wanders apart casting spells, cried Ian, spinning his seat violently. The whole thing, thing is one big joke. Don't you remember? The scarves are supposed to look stupid. No, Mom, don't make that on the cross face. You knew it once, then you forgot because you got greedy, like like Dad, like, like Tupac here. Ian started out. No, let me finish. If we sing badly, we're a joke, right? If we sing well, we're a better joke. Mom, if the scarves look shite, it's funny. If they look great, it's even funnier, but in a sad way, because you're trying to make us look good, and it's all crap. All of it. Ian's face was red. His lips were twisted. 
Justin stared at him, his jaw opening slightly back in high space. Finally, they went out and were greeted by Keezer, the spiky-haired, smooth-skinned, laconically unfunny VJ for the cute newcomer's show. So, my friends, let us put our hands together to welcome the most literal band on the planet, Boy Band. The applause was great. They sailed out of the corridor onto the set, and there was something oddly familiar about the scene. For most of their young lives, the boys had been accepted immediately due to looks, wealth, confidence, connections. This crowd was theirs already, and it was not an unknown feeling. So, members of boy band. Wait, is that how you pronounce it, boy band? What do the dots do? Nothing at all, actually, said Ian, narrowing his eyes. They represent our hot edge. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're going to do the pseudo-intimate chat now. As you can see, we're being quite clear about that. Keither gestured at the monitor, which displayed the phrase. So which one of you came up with the name of the band? Well, said Chris, we were talking about names, like Baker, Smith, and so on. But we were thinking, said Todd, so there's Richardson, which is the son of Richard. But what about the son of Richardson? We had differing viewpoints. I thought, Richardson, son, said Todd. I thought, Richardson squared, Richardson cubed, and so on, said Ian. Justin thought, Richardson, you know, with that little musical line over it at the end, repeat and fade, said Chris. So, Richardson, son, 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 said Todd. And that got us thinking about music and names, said Ian. That's your day? asked Keezer. Man, you guys got some time. He turned to Justin. So you're the intense one, right? Justin nodded. Keezer nodded in a slow, stoner kind of way. So you're quiet. Excellent. Very bono, very rattle and hum. He grinned at the camera. No, gentle viewers, I can't get through a show without a U2 reference. So so you guys all, like, go to school together, or how did you meet? Karaoke, said Todd. No kidding. That was the first name for the band. Bad karaoke, said Chris. I wanted Tequila Mockingbird, said Todd, but I think that was on The Simpsons. I preferred Fong Squeegee, said Gerald. I mean, just imagine the video. So you all said, let's make a boy band? No, said Todd. Ian's dad is an agent, so he's her blinks. What, he had you in the house the whole time and never knew you sang? Ian smiled. I never really did it at home. Before, we always thought boy bands were sort of cryogenically grown in vast South American biospheres, said Todd. And after a year or two of ritual combat, the most mighty among them were released into the media, said Chris. Gerald smiled. But as it turns out, you just have to have connections. Kiza grinned. Well, boys, it's been a slice, but now it's time to see what all the fuss is about. You ready? Justin nodded. The boys put on their earphones, got up, and went over to the stage. They struck their poses. Ian started snapping his fingers and whispered, One, two, three, four. The other boys started on their harmonies. Justin stared into the crowd. Something was happening to him. It took him about half a second to realize what it was. Oh, man, I hate this moment. The moment in the movie when the talented newcomer is out in front of the people for the first time and, and freezes... You just know that they're going to find their voice and do fine, but it was such artificial tension. Oh, I see. I'm having my little shine moment. The music faltered. There was a pause. The hastily typed phrase, dramatic false start, came up on the monitor. The boys behind Justin swooped back into the beginning of their harmonies fairly smoothly. In the dressing room, Al involuntarily clutched his testicles. Ready to sing, ready to sing, thought Justin, but there was a cold tension in his heart and something underneath it, a geological well of anger, sadness. Is this really what I want to be doing with my life? He thought of Jimmy Carter, some ex-president writing poems and nailing roofs on poorhouses. 
I will become candy floss and disappear. Did I even make a choice to sing, you motherfucker? Desperation clouded the room. The greedy eyes of the audience glazed over in the mute pleasure of witnessing a very public crash and burn. The camera zoomed in on Justin's pale, sweaty face, then pulled back jerkily and centered on his neck. Rivulets of sweat carved through his makeup, exposing red welts like running blood. Holy shit, thought Justin, it's gonna happen! He suddenly leapt forward, his agonized growl almost shorting the music system. Fuck the pretty cage of my empty heart. Fuck the lift tickets, the stupid huge fucking car. Fuck my cheekbones, they are a moon's craters. Fuck all I was given, it was never for me. I am an Oscar held before a hollow hall. There was no delay in the sound. It was a boy band special after all. Who was worried? As a result, four fucks and one fucking made it on the air. In the video booth, jaws and coffees were dropped. A hip was fiercely bruised as a stunned technician dove across a board to yank the feed. Just before the cut, though, something quite odd happened. As Justin drove into his rant, the four boys behind him stared in shock, glanced at each other, then shrugged, folded their arms, cocked their hips, and shifted into nice urban rap poses. It was not an elegant cut. White static filled the screen. Justin's cursing continued to ring out. The technician grabbed the nearest tape and popped it in. It was the video for what you want me to be. The man stared at it in horror, but knew that another cut would be even worse than letting it play. On the screen, Justin's oversized face smiled beautifully over his angel's wings as his swearing rap rant continued. Finally, the technician switched to the sound of the video. In the studio, in front of the open-mouthed tween crowd, Justin gave vent to a high, agonized scream, then burst into tears and wet himself. <laughs>